Well, welcome to another Chatting with Ingram. I've got another fantastic guest talking about a book we have mentioned beforehand, but I'll let her introduce that book. But it's Karen Whelan. Karen, it's very good to see you. Thank you. Great for having me. Thank you so much. Now, you've just released a book with Angela Doyle-Stewart, and it's coming out in print, or it has just come out in print. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the book? Yeah, thanks, Phil. Thanks so much. Yeah, our book is now on paperback on Amazon. It was up there as a Kindle read. Myself and Angela, we are just wonderful friends. Um, we just, as I would say, we are the, we are soul sisters. We get each other. We really get each other. We can go very deep and tell each other everything and just be our real selves with each other. So just this beautiful honoring of each other, really, we have. And you know, we, we met at a wellness retreat together a few years back and instantly, instantly we just recognized each other and just beautiful conversation. And we had the same kind of like morals and values. So we came together and we ended up just noticing, you know what, together we want to do and be in service and really collaborate. Angela's background is in broadcast and TV and radio. I am a psychotherapist and an author and Angela is an author. So we came together then. We have a little company on, under Your Nova Life. People would find it at yournovalife.com. And we've done plenty of talks. So we came together and we said, you know what, Angela, Angela was on this incredible journey with herself. She was really looking into really trying to understand anxiety and social anxiety. And she went on this incredible journey to really delve into that now being a psychotherapist I absolutely didn't bombard her with any psychotherapeutic dialogue about it you know for me it's like no she's my friend I'm going to meet her in the heart conversation so she went off an incredible journey to really get beyond social anxiety and we both kind of came together and said let's collaborate let's do a book so the book is the first part of the book is Angela's personal story and that journey of you know, really being very honest and, you know, she's beautiful like that. She really shares her personal self in this book and her story of social anxiety. Because here we have an extraordinary person who would stand up in front of thousands, you know, no problem. She hosted Phoenix, Phoenix Talks all over Ireland, well able to stand up in front of thousands. She'd have no problem going on radio or on TV. But then when you put her in a pub, which was that unpredicted environment, she would then really feel anxiety in her body. So for Angela at the time, you know, she would have, she wasn't a drinker, you know, she would on a night out have a drink. But for her, the next day, she would feel worse for having that drink. So over time, she was like, okay, I don't want to keep doing this to myself. I don't want to keep on sabotaging my own self, having that drink then, that then catapults me into more anxiety for days later and the guilt and not feeling good. I need to just really go in and meet that discomfort in my body. So she really offers a beautiful personal insight into social anxiety. And then I come in for the second half and I really help people to get behind the veil of really, it's kind of like bringing in, as I always say to people, you know, I love working with people. I like to empower people consciously. So it's like conscious empowerment. When we really can understand ourselves in a real way and we understand why we do things the way we do, because, you know, you know, there's um, a beautiful little story that I always listen to and I love it. And it's about, you know, this golden Buddha and this village was about to be under attack. So they covered this golden statue, this golden, golden Buddha with mud and stone because they didn't want to take it. It was a very precious statue to the community. So the tribe came in and 
all they saw was the stone statue. So they didn't take it when they took over the village. And then years later, they left. And one day a young monk was meditating at the Buddha and he went to stand up and he broke off a bit of the stone and out shone the golden light of this golden Buddha. And he ran back to his elders going, the statue is golden, the statue is golden. And they took off the armor and off of this Buddha and revealed the golden light within. For me, that is exactly what I feel all of this is about. I feel we are born as that golden Buddha. We are that golden light. But because of life situations and life events that happen onto us, we armor up to protect our vulnerability so nothing can penetrate that. So we forget we are that golden, gorgeous Buddha light, that we are this gorgeous being of light. And instead, we operate from the defense mechanisms. We become the, you know, to use the metaphor, the stone statue. And in the defense mechanisms, they can become very unhealthy habitual ways of being. Even though they were set up to protect us, they can also create more distress in our lives. So, you know, I said to Angela, look, you do your part of the book, brilliant. And then I'll be able to come in and really validate what you're saying. But I'll add the conscious empowerment dimension onto it where I really had people understand what is my, you know, what is my stone statue? What defense mechanism am I living from? What is it that I run to that if I know if I just stopped it, I would be a lot happier, but yeah, I can't stop that very thing that is just driving me mad. You know, whether that's the one too many chocolate bars, you know, whatever that is, I mean, I'm guilty of that. But, you know, over time I've learned to recognize, you know, no, it's, I run to that because in the moment of having that, it comforts me, but it doesn't really comfort me. It only soothes the distress in the moment when really true liberation comes when we meet the discomfort within ourselves because it's all inside of us. Everything is in here in the body. So when we really go in and connect in to ourselves, we begin, like the metaphor, we begin to break off the stone. We begin to break away the, the armor and we begin to understand why was the armor and even there? Why was it, you know, it was protecting me. I don't need it anymore. That is the best place to live from, which is known in therapy as that authentic self, which we struggle to really allow ourselves and permit ourselves to live from an, an authentic space. Yeah, and we, we, really we, we, talked, we talked about in it the, um, how, how easy it is, especially if you're in a, uh, you know, as Angela is in the, in, in the public life. Um, in a very forward position, as I was um, when I was in the military, where I've got a uniform, I've got a rank, um, you've, you've got a mask that you can put on. Um, and it's like an actor going on a stage and you and you can do that. And you live because it's your professional life and the way you live, you live that. So you live that falsehood and the real you behind it is something that's different. And often you don't even recognize the real you yourself until it starts to fall apart. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's known in many, if you were look, to look at all storytelling, it's known as the hero's journey. You know, it's that unfolding and unbecoming, as I wrote in other books, you know, that unbecoming to become. Um, and for me, it's like, you know, and I only know too well, in truth, you know, that fear of being who we are and living through that authentic expression of who we are, because over time, we have learned that who I am I'm afraid to be who I am because who I am might not be good enough. Therefore, I'm going to reject it in me because others have. So I'm going to reject it too because I want that connection with people. I want it. We are born for attachment. Attachment is so important for our survival. Once we have a secure attachment, we begin to thrive. So you can imagine with little kids, you know, they learn it very young. Oh, you're playing the game wrong. You're stupid. You know, you look silly. 
I mean, right there is the coding of who you are is not enough. Then when you internalize that and you listen to that and you believe that to be the truth, you will reject inside of yourself that aspect of your own self Mm -hmm. just because you want the validation from your peers and from the people around you. And like what you said, you know, even in a job, in a role, you know, we, we put on that facade, we become that role. Um, to fulfill that role but it's like is that role really who we are and I very fortunately but you know unfortunately in another way I have really met that on my life's path you know where life came in and totally broke down what I thought was me that version of me to wake me up and to recognize and this is not who you are at all this is not you um, yeah. Now, before we go back and look at that, the book that you've published sure. is called Sun, Sun, Sunday Morning Cure, No More Anxiety. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. It's- but get it, getting to that, you've you've had a, that painful journey. You know, as, as I went through mine, I described to people now I've got proper me back. Now, proper me is a different me to the person that there was before I started to suffer and before I, you know, I, I fell apart completely, yeah. but it's proper me. You know, I know who I am and I know where, where I fit and that's great. And I think you could probably describe that you've got proper you back, but how did you get in that journey? Oh, out. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in truth, you know, and I'll be so real about that. Life took me there, you know, if, um, you know, the minute we're born, you know, our, our parents are our teachers. Then, you know, our school becomes the next environment to teach us. Our community is there to teach us. Everything is there to teach us. People are always coming into our lives. You know, I always say that, you know, they're a lesson or a blessing, but they're here to really teach you something about yourself. You know, even if you don't like the connection you've had with that person. For me, life um, was an amazing teacher and I can say amazing because today I'm in that place where I'm very much consciously empowered in knowing who I actually am and I know me and I absolutely honor that person that I am and that resonates in everything I do you know like I I'll wake up and I'm like do I want to go for a run today no she actually just wants to have a walk she wants to go to the beach she wants meditation I honor everything about me you know it's before I would chase something outside of myself or I'd ring 10 friends when I had something I had to figure out I was so disempowered to myself I couldn't even think for myself I needed validation from everybody around me so my journey began from the day I showed up (laughs) as a child (laughs) that's Um, going right back to the beginning Mm. (laughs) it really is um and I showed up into an environment where you know the first thing I met was terror of being in a physical body because my environment was there was sexual abuse and then there was physical violence um and that continued until I was 14 years of age so for me actually even being in a physical body it was terrifying I was terrified you know I just never knew when the next threat was going to happen when the you know the next we'll call it that that assault was going to happen onto me always afraid very much terrified and I learned the the ability to overthink and overanalyze because I needed to escape out of a body and I needed to run into my head. And that was my mm-hmm. safety, my safety place. Mm-hmm. However, very interestingly as well, you know, there was the duality. There was this part of me that was terrified. And yet there was this part of me that felt very deeply connected, the innocence in me 
felt so in love with life and I would spend hours on my back just connecting with the clouds, you know, as we do make shapes out of the clouds and just really feel like, as you see a baby with a teddy bear, you know, they really believe that that, the, the teddy bear has a life force within it and they have a deep connection to it. I had that with everything around me. I, I would have it for trees. I would have it for animals. I would have it for the little insects. I would have when I was making my daisy chains I was mm-hmm. so connected into the life force of everything around me. So there was a part of me that felt very safe in the world, that the world out there was very safe, but the world inside here in the body was terrifying for me to be in. So mm-hmm. there was that duality. Um, and then at 14, you know, now I can look back and recognize, oh my goodness, I was such a very brave person. I didn't realize it back then. But at 14, I made a very brave choice. I recognized that in order to stop what was happening to me, I needed to speak up and I needed to speak out. And that was terrifying because prior to that, nothing in me had that understanding that I could take power and I could end the abuse that was happening to me. I never thought like that before. And society at the time, what talking out um, and you know, you're a child, children talking out, it, in, in, especially in, in Ireland, is not something that uh, is expected, is normally done, and, no. and, and pe- people will sit and listen to it. No, and I remember even the day, you know, when I, I was getting to that place where I just had enough, I hated what was happening to me, I was really starting to hate And unfortunately, I was beginning to really hate Karen because of what I was experiencing. And the day I spoke out, and this is the truth, I mean, I was only 14. I ended up going off and getting stoned. Imagine that at 14. I went off and smoked hash at the time um, with my friend. And, you know, she just said it to me very strongly. I'll never forget, even when you think of the little wisdom of a 14-year-old, she said to me, you know, then why why don't you do something about it? And that never dawned on me that I actually could do something about my situation because I was so disempowered you know I I felt this person owned me so there was no sense of me I was objectified I was an object I didn't have access to what I thought was my own power and you know I did and I was you know I can even feel the coldness in my body when I connect back to that moment walking through the social workers building the fear that I was saturated in, this fear of what if they don't believe me? What if I'm sent away? What Mm -hmm. if I'm punished? The fear of what if I say this and nobody believes me, I'm going to be in trouble. I was so afraid. I remember trembling sitting outside while my friend went in because it was her social worker and she went in to speak. And then the social worker called me in and Like, I'll never forget that moment when I even spoke it into existence, the words, you know, that I am being sexually abused. I'll never forget Mm -hmm. it. And just watching her body to see where is it going to land in her? How is she going to react to me? She was wonderful. She had a very, a very kind reaction to me. Um, And she came with me. And then there was the disclosure of it into my family. And then my family not knowing how to handle this. Nobody knowing what to Mm -hmm. do with it. And as a result of the grown-ups in my life not knowing what to do with it, I began to internalize I'm a problem because of me. I'm creating mm. suffering to everyone. And that became so bad for me at one point. I ended up constantly fighting with my family. The rage would come out. I needed a lot of connection. I needed a lot of love. But my defense, the statue in me, 
moved into a position where I became so hurt and angry that every action I did actually create separation rather than connection. And so I was creating the opposite. So I was actually kind of, you could say, revalidating and reconfirming back to myself that I don't matter through my actions, but not recognizing that I was actually doing it through my actions as well. So I moved in with my grandmother um, and I loved that, you know, it was like sitting on the feet at this beautiful old woman and she would share stories from her timeline and she was a chain smoker and she would just put out a cigarette and then she'd light up another one and she'd give me the end of cigarette. So I loved it. I was like, oh, I love that she's she's allowing me to smoke. Oh my God, when that, I think that, of that, it. Was com- that was common practice among so many places in Ireland. <laughs> I know the storytelling, the sitting by the fire and listening to the stories. And then here, yeah. you can have the end of my cigarette. You know, yeah. I loved her. But I just remember staring into her wrinkled face and just being in awe of this gorgeous grandmother. And then I'd climb into the bed with her and go sleep with her. And my world felt safe and I felt I belonged somewhere. And then unfortunately, after five months of living with her, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and very quickly she was gone out of my life very quickly, like literally within a month. She, de- she deteriorated and she was gone. And I was looking around at 15 going, what next? Where do I go? You know, of mm-hmm. course, my family wanted me to move home. I did not want to be at home with my family. I had so much hurt towards my family and they couldn't work with that. Back then, you know, in Ireland, there was no child care act. There was no you know, support systems or family therapy. It was like the social worker showed up, this was outed and that was it. And then I was kind of, I was kind of told by my peers, the olders in my life, you know, you need to be very quiet about this. This will bring a lot of shame into your family. So in other words, what I heard was you're a bad person and keep your mouth quiet. Now, luckily for me, there was always that part of me that just wouldn't shut up. I never Mm. shut up. I always, there was a part of me that would defend against injustice. And, and, and to this day, Phil, I think that's the part of me. You'll only hurt me. And the only aspect of me that will get hurt today is when there's a great injustice happening in the, in, in the interaction. Yeah. And I know that that's yeah. the injustice. And, that, and that, that very essence of you had sort of shriveled into this, this little ball. But, but, the, but that was a strength. That was your foundation to build everything on. And to take all the decisions that you had to do. And at 14 and 15 to be in that position. Wow. You know, and, you know, before I even was able to continue on, you know, there was a moment where, you know, when I heard that from my elders, you know, I remember I locked myself into the bathroom and I stared at my reflection in the mirror and I couldn't even identify with the reflection looking back at me. I didn't recognize her. I, I had totally with great fury, I had hated who I, who I was and I hated her in the mirror. So there was no receptivity between me and me when I looked at her. And I remember staring at her and just swallowing pills and viciously looking into the eyes of my reflection and saying, I fucking hate you. I really hate you. You have destroyed my life. I hate you. And I really meant that. Like I hated her so much. And I swallowed the tablets and I just climbed into the bed. And when I woke the next morning, I was actually angry. I was still here. Mm -hmm. When I woke, I was like, what? I'm actually here. Later on that day, I collapsed and I was rushed to a hospital and I was pumped out. um, And, you know, I was absolutely fine. 
so for me, that just took me down that path of, you know, self-sabotage, self-hate. I ended up on the streets. I ended up becoming very promiscuous. From the age of 15, I would have sex just to be with guys who were dealing in drugs, just so I could get drugs from them. And I just objectified myself. I went into the the real extreme end of objectifying my own self and resenting myself as a person and had no compassion for my own humanity, just did not like anything about her. So, you know, and I remember one time on the streets and, and really being out in my head and being on my own because he was going off to sell drugs. And I was just sitting there with a sleeping bag. And I remember just looking at the gray, cold, wet ground and at the wall. And I said, and you know, this was the truth. There was a part of me going, I can make this a lovely place for me. All I need to do is put a little plant there and put something here. And here I was creating a sense of home and belonging in the most coldest, uh, harshest environments. I was finding the beauty in it mm-hmm. so I could feel safe, you know. And and even now, you know, because over time I ended up working with homeless people, you know, I really got that part of them where they could make home out of um, out of nothing, out of boxes. Yeah. And, you know, they knew how to find something within them to feel connected to their environment that they were shrunk into. So, you know, that was my path. I ended up just being homeless. And then at 16, I, I got a job in a hotel cleaning rooms. And I moved in with a girl who was 19, a single mother. And that's when chaos really met, met me. I just would come Friday, we would lock down the house, there'd be 20 other people in the house, and we would just take drugs all weekend. And I mean, I was taking ecstasy, I was mixing it with acid, I was taking cocaine, I was drinking, I was smoking weed. That was the cocktail of my life at the weekend, where my whole weekend would be just lost, where I was completely just out of my head. During that state Mm -hmm. of being high, you know, for me, what would happen is it was like my psyche would take out everything that had happened to me, the trauma, and give me this 360 degree view, but also would give me the other person's perspective in there with me. So Mm -hmm. even though I was high, there was parts of me still going into the trauma and the trauma was being unveiled to me even more. And I was getting insights and understanding about people in my life so a part of me then started to yearn for my family and for connection and I wanted the goodness again I was starting to Mm -hmm. be done with the chaos and one night I mixed uh, acid with ecstasy and I had a very bad trip and I thought my hair was on fire and I kept on banging my head off the wall until I bled Um, and I went into the mirror and when I'd look in the mirror the, the the bad trip would stop but when I looked in the mirror I just had that calling and I remember it in school it would happen to me where I'd always look out beyond something would pull me to look out at the horizon and I would stare out over the horizon there was this sense of being called to something out there and for me I think it was home our love it was like a knowing that something out there is waiting for you to come out home to it and I could really feel that always in my life and in that moment in that mirror I, I cried and I just said take me home, take me home. I don't want this. Mm -hmm. And I remember the the sun was coming up and it just came through the window and it broke against the back of the mirror because the mirror was against the window and it just fragmented onto the ground and all these little rainbows just touched me. And in my little beautiful moment, you know, for me, that was a real serendipity moment where I believed 
that 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 I was seeking was trying to tell me, calm, mm-hmm. this is it, calm. And I did. I, I'm 17 and all of a sudden I'm on a plane heading to France to be an au pair. No French. You <laughs> <laughs> learn quickly. <laughs> I tell you, and that's that little energy in me that would just keep on, you know, the hero, the warrior, that, you know, the part yeah. of me that would just, no matter how terrifying it was, I always found a way when there was no way. Uh-huh. I'd find a way when there's no way. That was the little essence of me. And I got the, I, I, I went, I ended up, my mother, friend, her daughter was in France and she was coming home and my mother knew I wanted to be a, a, an au pair. So she was like, why don't you go there? I rang the family. It sounded amazing. I hopped on a plane. My mother, my family gave me 550 francs. I hadn't a clue what that was, had it in my pocket, <laughs> arrived in France, no French. And there's about an hour and a half later, I'm in this massive airport in Geneva in Switzerland and I'm terrified. I'm 17, I'm terrified. Yeah. And I'm like, where's this family? And next minute, this woman arrives and it was like, Bienvenue en France, Karen, je suis content que tu es ici. I <laughs> panic panic hit me and I'm going what have I fucking done (laughs) and I'm in my very Irish you know bonjour with my very thick accent and the little girl that I'm going to be minding Agath is hiding behind her mother peeking out at me and I'm just and we get in the car and she continues to speak French because she spoke English on the phone and I just break down crying and she just looked at me and she said you have no French and I was like no she said, too late you stay, you learn. And I was like, yes, I will learn. Now, I'm a person who left school at 15. Uh-huh. You know, I dropped out at school. When I was in school, I was the girl getting high. I was sniffing Tipex in the bathroom. I was constantly high. Yeah. So here I am looking at this French woman, and I'm like, I will learn. I will learn. No one I have no interest to ever be put into an <laughs> academic environment ever again. So it turned out to be the most incredible journey it was like I was given what I needed in my life she turned out to be a famous healer she's a cranial and osteopath I crashed on the scooter and I broke my ribs and fingers and this woman just put her hands on my head and worked on my body and healed my ribs and fingers by just touching my body and I stood up and she looked at me and she said you have so much trauma and anger in that body she said, you need to learn about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, wow. I was paranoid. I was like, how is she doing this? I was yeah. intimidated by her energy. I was like, how, how can she see this about me? But I took it in. There was that part of me, that part in all of us that knows how to do the work and to do the healing for ourselves. That part of me drank in those words. So at Christmas, you know, they would take their family out of France in the cold weather and go away somewhere for a month or two. At Christmas, I was flown to St. Lucia Island in the Caribbean. Here you have a girl who grew up in a, a housing estate with a lot of disadvantaged families who came from a very broken environment, who was homeless. And all of a sudden, I am being saturated in the goodness of the Caribbean island. <laughs> The, the hardships you have to endure. <laughs> the hardships I had to endure to get that. Um, and it was the most remarkable thing for me because every morning I would put the youngest child, there was two girls I was up here, and Alex had put her in a pram and I would go off early in the morning and I found a little beach cove and I would sit there 
And I would now at the time, I didn't know it was meditation and contemplation, but I would sit there and I would drop into my heart. The little girl would be asleep and I would think about my family and I'd stare again out over the horizon and just stare into that for hours, looking for home, looking for a sense of me, looking to find me and understand me. And I did, you know, after about a month of doing that, I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to the person who had brought all of the suffering into my life. And I told them that I absolutely forgave them, that I didn't want to hold on to this. I recognized by being with my anger and being with it, I was actually holding on to hate. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that energy in me anymore. It, It was given to me because of what had happened to me. I just didn't want my body holding on to it. I was done hanging. It was holding me back. It was holding me back from healing. You know, I was now in a very loving environment. I was safe. I was away from my friends and drugs. I was now in this gorgeous au pair family that were a healthy family living in a very beautiful part of France. I had a bedroom with a balcony, third floor up, looking out at Mount Blanc and the Alps every morning. I was in a very rich, vibrant, full of abundance Mm-hmm. around me and love and I could feel life loving me that's something I never felt felt my you know growing up I never felt mm-hmm. that life life loved me you know and here I am feeling very loved so I had more access to the love within and I just knew you need to release this and you need to send it back return to sender I'm sending it back mm-hmm. to you from you it came to you it must go back and I posted my letter and I have to say the joy in my body felt was extraordinary it was actually done it was done in me I knew that huge weight being lifted oh and I never recognized how much I was holding and and, you know and that is the truth and even in the work now as a therapist we never really know how much we were holding on or how much it was weighing in on us and how heavy it's been for us until we we, we, we disarmor it. We take it off of us. It's like the mm-hmm. armor and on us. We take that armor and off. And it was a massive piece of work for me to let go of that. But I really meant it and I did let it go. And that was wonderful. And I returned back. We came back to France and um, I fell in love. I was only after turning 18. He was 27. I fell in love. Oh, my God, did I fall in love with this French gorgeous man? And I became pregnant and I moved in with him. And I came home to Ireland to have my my baby because they paid their taxes at the end of the year. So I came home Uh and very soon, about a month afterwards, it got very quiet between us and I didn't know what was going on. And three weeks before I was due my son, a letter arrived from his dad and I opened the letter and it started off, uh, bonjour mon chéri, which is hello darling. You know, I hope you are well, you and the baby, and I have some news to tell you. And then I proceeded to say, you know, I can't entertain you and the baby, not here or in Ireland. I'm really sorry. Uh. And I'm sitting there in this massive bump, and I'm 19, and I never really wanted to come back to Ireland. We I, we agreed yeah. to do it because, for me, it was free to have a baby on the VHI. And yeah. all of a sudden what I thought was my world just dissolved in front of me. And I'm sitting there going, how am I going to take care of a baby? You Mm -hmm. know, because I felt very safe when I was with his dad, you know, and now I'm looking at this bump and this baby's due very soon. And I have nothing. I have nothing. I have no cot. 
I have nothing. I have nothing for this baby. And I have a Moses basket that was given by a family, uh, you know, neighbor. And that's it because my life was going to be back in France. So I did. I gave birth to a gorgeous little boy called Aaron. And I remember in the hospital the day I gave birth to him, just in shock, actually, of the beauty of this being. And the minute I, I birthed him, you know, he I remember just rubbing him and putting my finger against him and measuring how tiny he was against my mm. hand. And he just gripped my finger, my index finger, and it awoken in me this unconditional love and this realization of you can do this. He's yours. You can absolutely. And you're going to really give to him that that was not being given to you. Yeah. And I knew this and I knew I'd do it and I knew I'd be okay. So I moved in on my own. Um, 19, I got a house and uh, and, you know, I lived with him, uh, with my son on my own. And then, you know, I th- at about when he was about one and a half, depression started to really creep in. I he would go to bed at seven. That was his bedtime routine. And I would be sitting alone in the world on my doorstep. Yeah. And I just felt like life was going on without me. And I want part of life out there again. Mm-hmm. And it brought up the old abandonment feelings and I'm not good enough and you know, I'm on my own and I only deserve that. And I began to really think about suicide and I began to think about, you know, I don't want to leave my baby behind. I don't want him growing up asking why did this happen? So I began to really plan it around taking him with me um, and leaving the earth with with my son. Um, Mm -hmm. And that plan started to become fixated in my mind and started to become a very serious plan and a real plan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happened was I went to so a medical checkup from work. So I, I told him, you know, that I was suicidal and I was having suicidal ideation. And he put me in a car and took me straight away to see a therapist. And, you know, I'm 21 and that's the very first time I'm sitting in a chair and I reveal my soul to another person. And it was the beauty and how they held me in that space uh-huh. and the safety of that space And I began to really begin. And that was the first beginning of unarmoring myself. If we go back to the metaphor, taking the stone off, stone off of the golden Buddha. Um, And as a result of doing the work in therapy at 21, I began to sit with the person who had caused so much abuse in my life and who had hurt me. And I began having these incredible dialogues with this person, Uh you know, really making them accountable and getting them to stay in the space with me and asking them like, why me? Why would you do this to me? And the person then was able to really go into the story. They were able to show their remorse to me, which is what I needed for healing. I needed to know Mm -hmm. that something about this person knew this was wrong and they did. And it was very real and it was very authentic in them. And then I learned about them and I learned about their life and it hit me. It was a real soul's recognition of another soul sitting across from me. It was a real understanding that they are so broken from their own trauma in childhood, you know, and they have carried that pattern of trauma onto you. And I knew in that moment, I'm not carrying that into my lifeline, into my kid's life. I get to now, it's come through an intergenerational line. It's now stopping with me. I get to stop it and Uh I get to heal in me the parts of me that I don't 
end up in a relationship that's abusive or that will affect me or my my child in any way. So I, I really realized, you know, at 21, I get to really heal this for my family's bloodline. And I didn't even know about concepts of intergenerational line uh-huh. and how patterns get carried over. I had no idea of this. I just had this knowing of I need to do this in a real way for my children, for my son at the time. And I did. Um, and everything changed. And I let go of my job. And I decided I am given to me something I want. And I want to go back to college. The impact of being in such an amazing family in France really showed me the possibility of life and what could be out there for you if you say yes to it. Mm-hmm. And if you're brave enough to take a leap of faith and jump into the unknown over and over and get. So I decided, you know, okay. And everyone was like, how are you going to go to college? You didn't do a leave insert. Nobody could understand this. Nobody in my family had even gone to college, so they couldn't get this. And they believed it was to do, no, don't you need to be really intelligent? And I just shrugged it all off. And I was like, I'm doing this. I just knew I was doing it. Mm -hmm. You couldn't talk that out of me. There was that real light in me going, and this is the, yeah, and a piece of, a piece of paper isn't a sign of intelligence. So it doesn't matter whether you've got your leaving cert or anything else. It's you know, the, the intelligence yeah. is there. And you know the piece in this that I love. It's like when you know you're on a path and it's the path for you. Nothing can take that from you. There's a there's a motivation in you that knows this is the way. This is the way. And I did, and I threw myself into college. I couldn't even put an essay together. You know, my lecturer <laughs> called me outside and he said. I know from the dialogue in the room, you're intelligent, but he said, what you're submitting and writing, Karen, you have no punctuation. You don't know where to put your full stop. And here's my son. He's three. He's doing his little play school homework. And I am there with Uh the basic grammar book, learning basic grammar all over again, because I don't know about paragraphs uh-huh. and full stops and commas and all of this, you know, now I'm in. Uh, you, you, get, you get you get them in a, a salt shaker and you just shake them over the page after you put all the words on. I love it. <laughs> if only that was tr- the truth. <laughs> so I threw myself in. I threw myself into college and I fell in love with college. I fell in love with college life and I did 10 consecutive years. And I trained then as um, a psychotherapist and That's then when I had finished my training as a psychotherapist, we moved. I met my daughter's dad and I was in a relationship with him, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had fear when I was in college, (laughs) breastfeeding and doing my dissertation. And oh, my God, when I think of the things I did to myself as well, you know, (laughs) the pressure. I must love pressure. (laughs) But we moved out to the countryside and I've never lived in a countryside. And I remember when I lived there. I just had so much space around me and all this creative energy started to come up and I began writing my first book and I wrote my first book unaware that I was actually really writing it from a place of wanting to be seen. I never felt seen Uh as a child because of what happened. I never felt seen and my story was never allowed to be told when I was a teenager. I had to keep it quiet. So this book for me when I wrote the first book called Come Home to Yourself it was an important book and I would go into a bookshop in, in my town and I would sit there every Friday and I would just channel this book and it would pour out to me. And I knew for me, you know, this is my way of healing that part of me that wanted to be seen, that needed to be seen. So a part of me needed to really go back into the story, tell it from a healed position with the conscious awareness that I have. 
and also write about the most painful of emotions, put language onto the most painful of feelings that people are terrified to meet within themselves, that if you language it for people and they read it in your story, they can apply it to their own story within and it becomes their language for their own soul and in that is healing and I knew this so I became my my first book is a very raw detail it doesn't go into the nitty-gritty of abuse but it's a raw detail of pain and suffering and suicide and the, the story I shared really so I wrote that and I put my name in Irish on it Carney Fuelon because I wanted to kind of protect my own anonymity well life had a better laugh at that you know and my grandmother used to say that and I'm not you know overtly religious but I am spiritual in a way she used to say you know give God a laugh tell him your plan she'd always say that to me you know and and I, I started to now I get that so my plan was to put this book out there but you know nobody would know about it locally at the time I was being badly bullied in my in my place work um yeah. and it was done very cleverly People would bully me, but anyone else come into the office, they change their atmosphere, their, their character, their persona. So nobody witnessed anything happening to me and I don't, I had no evidence. Yeah, and how common is that? It's fright, frighteningly common across the workplace and, and many other places. You know, and it is. And what happens is, what happened for me was, you know, it invoked in me that little girl who hated to be wrong, yeah. who, who d- yeah. didn't like doing things wrong and who always felt she was wrong, even though I wasn't. So... Even in that, it's funny how life will keep giving you the old programs to see, can you cop on here? Are you well, catching it's, on it's, to this? It's, yeah, and it's the trigger. It, 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 it triggers everything that, that's going on beforehand. Again, it brings exactly. it all back into, in, into today. And yeah. it's, you know, it's terrible. It's, but to see, can you consciously cop it and give to yourself what you couldn't give all along to break the program and yeah. heal it. In yeah. work, I, I didn't see it as that. I didn't, I didn't see life as being my real teacher and the lessons when I was being bullied I ran into that place and wanting to be liked and I would buy coffee for them and I would try and not manipulate but my agenda was to get them to like me in order to be safe in my place of work yeah but the bullying went on for two years and then when I put my book out there they actually rang uh social services to identify who it was who had committed to the abuse even though we had dealt with this over 25 years ago, they took the bullying into my play, my personal life um, and triggered such a triggering. Now for me today, and in that time, I stood the catalyst that was happening here. It was almost like my childhood story had to come up so everyone in my family could meet it again from where they were today and that they could take a piece away and heal it that they couldn't heal back then because they didn't have the tools or the emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there was a baby that my parents and my family were minding because of heroin. Uh, we had a beautiful niece. And because of the allegation that went in, you know, it ended up being that I had to hand over my niece. She was two. She was with since she was born. Mm-hmm. I had to hand her over in a car park. And to try and strap a two-year-old into a car seat, and they're screaming and she was screaming and she was trying to climb into me and hold on to me. And, you know, out of everything, that was my triggering. Yeah. Here in the car, the social workers pull off with that child and her screams, you know, becoming faint as they got further away from me. Mm-hmm. That haunted me that night. I didn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. My partner had left me because he couldn't cope with the exposure of the book. 
Um, yeah. Everything was falling apart. You know, I was still being bullied in work and I just couldn't cope. And I remember the next day mm-hmm. getting in the car and just getting angry with life going, what the fuck are you doing to me? Why fucking me? And I was really angry and I closed my eyes and put my foot down on the pedal because I just said, if you don't want me here on this planet, if you know, if this is the shit I'm going to have to deal with, take me fucking out. And I wasn't suicidal. I was angry. It was like, yeah. you know what? Yeah. I'm done with this. I'm done with this matrix. I'm done with this fucking bullshit. Fucking, I want out. I want out. So my way of saying I want out was, you know, foot down, close my eyes. But I just heard the strongest voice saying, wake up, come home. And I opened my eyes and there was cows up on the footpath on the road ahead of me. I stopped the car, got out and I vomited everywhere. And then all of a sudden it was like, you know, when the dryer has been going on in the background for too long and you didn't realize it was noisy until it stops. Yeah, that's what happened. All of my suffering just stopped, and my mind went so quiet, and I went very still. I was looking for the suffering inside, going, "Where is this pain?" The pain was gone. That night, I had this profound dream, and the dream was I was actually consciousness traveling through space with collective consciousness, and it showed me uh-huh. my life's path. It, it it showed me Earth, and it showed me what I was coming in to do, and it says, "Now you know what you're here for." And I woke up and for eight days, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I Words couldn't come out of my mouth. I just cried. A friend moved in to mind the space. You know, she was brilliant with mm-hmm. the kids. She was able to say, your mother's just having an awakening. She's okay. She's okay. Mm-hmm. And inside of me, I was shown everything about myself and why I was this version of myself that I was and how none of it had anything to do with who I actually am. It was always about making it right for other people. I'm that person that if you're suffering, I will abandon myself and run into your world and take care of you in there and neglect anything going on in my world. That was who I was. I was the people pleaser. I was the clown on the night out because if people laughed at me, I felt I felt they wanted me, you know, and it just showed me how none of that had had to do with me. It, It had gotten to do with, let's call it the stone statue. Mm-hmm. It gotten to do with the aspect of me that I had created out of because who I am is not okay. So I'm going to create this version of me. Yeah. yeah. And because I was living out of a false, now not intentionally, but a false self, life couldn't give me what it needed to give me that was an honor and of the true me. Because yeah. I want being in contact with that trueness. Of that you, you, that did, you didn't know the true you. You didn't have that. No. Of your, I, I hadn't a clue of who the true me was. That was, if anyone was to even ask me, who are you? I would get lost to that. I'd only write down all the labels. I'm a mother. I'm a student. Yeah. I'm, yeah. who was I? I had no idea. So this grip of silence gripped me. And this knowing that I needed to always to be in silence, to find my nature, I needed to know the power of that. And I started to go away to what's called um, Mount Mallory in, in, in Ireland, where there's Benedictine monks. And I would uh-huh. go there on these retreats and I would sit alone in silence for three days and I'd come out and I'd go back up a month later and I'd come out and I'd go back up. And then I'd find myself going out to the beach and just sitting and all of a sudden chasing ambition, wanting materialism, 
wanting the status quo meant fucking nothing to me. To my very rich friends, I must have looked like I was a head case falling apart. But really inside, I was falling back in together with the truth of who I was. And it was the most profound. And it's very lonely because nobody can see it going on in you. You know, but, it's, but, but the peace that you can get from nature and from learning about who you are and understanding yourself oh, is undescri- undescribable for people who haven't been through that. Oh, you know, even me sitting at that beach, I would sit in just, you know, on a little bench staring at the beach. The beauty, what happened was simplicity became the most profound experience in my life. Yeah. Watching the wave unfold on the beach, yeah. watching people walk on the beach, dogs in their play. You know, simplicity had more richness to it Mm -hmm. than what I thought was rich. Everything else was meaningless and empty. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, being with that, I began to feel into my own simplicity within. I started to really feel into the heart energy of who I was. And once I started to know that, you you can't take me away from that that is me. And I love that now because the place, you know, and that's, you know, and I wrote my second book, you know, The Journey Home from this place that I'm talking yeah. about today, you know, um, and I remember my son captured it brilliantly for me one day I woke him when he said, in a fabulous life called you in as you. And I was like, go on. He said, well, you're not after coming in as a tree or a bird, as a dog. Life called you in so it can express itself as a Karen and really yeah. feel itself through you. And he said, your only permission is to self-permit. Yeah. And when he said self-permit, I was like, you little fecker. My whole <laughs> life I've been seeking permission from the extern <laughs> and from people in it. Yeah, wow. but that's, that's, that's why you had him, to give you the, to give you that lens, to give you that phrase, you know, that to bring, bring it. it all together. <laughs> and I sat in that, I only need to self-permission. That made me realise that I'm terrified of my own light. I'm terrified to see the golden Buddha within. I'm terrified yeah. to meet the power of that that I am, that we all are. Yeah. You know, and now that I've accessed it, the beauty of that that it brings into my world is phenomenal. You know, and the the beauty it brings into the work with my clients is the minute you sit across from me as a client, I already see that golden aspect of you. And I know the programming that's in the way of you that blocks you from seeing it. So now the work for me has moved away from, we'll say, talking therapy into transformational body work uh, and it's not long-term therapy you know I don't stay with it it's not long-term therapy because now I can get into the heart of it with a person and I love that I love that and I love getting them to come home to themselves through the work you know and it's just wonderful yeah, Wonderful. You, you, you've got that personal lived experience, so you can see a lot of things that uh, I, I suspect a lot of your clients can't see in themselves because they, they haven't gone through that journey um, yet. Uh, and, and, and you're in a position to help, help them get through that journey because you've been there, seen it, done it yeah. um, and suffered it. Look, life is brilliant. Life will communicate to you in whispers. If you're not listening to the whispers, it's not hard on your door. And not hard on my door because I was so defended against life because I was terrified to be myself in this life. I was terrified. But what I've come to really understand what life is and life experiences, and I love it because, you know, I've been fortunate to be around some wonderful teachers and spiritual teachers, you know, and they've said life isn't here to hurt you. It's here to wake you up. And that's the truth. Now I'm in a very conscious, empowered position within myself where when anything gets thrown at me, 
you know like even that time when I when my my relationship broke down and I was homeless with two kids you know it did not I was just so able to hold space and be able to work with this and and merge with this and trust trust that something else was having to come on my path for me I have such a trust and trust and a faith and faith you can't rob that out of me and you know Angela will tell you that she's witnessed that with me you know people might say something to me and it just doesn't go in because I know her I you cannot take from what I know about myself that's that's why the two of you complement each other so well we are we are so fantastic and we remind each other of we're a mirror for each other and I always say that to her you know she'd be like thank you for the love no darling I'm only mirroring back love that that you are you know and we're just wonderful little partnership with each other that way you know and we love we love what we do together we just love the work that we do together you know so that's my story you're absolutely fantastic well you i can't uh more highly recommend and, and suggest that people go and get the book sunday morning cure and i'll put a link um below the podcast in this but um, Karen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And wow, what a story. I could I could spend all day talking to you easily. <laughs> I know, and I could spend all day talking as well. And yeah, but that's, you, that, that's, you know? that's, that's, that's just genetic. Yeah, we're we're that's both just... we're both from that, that that part of the world where all you do is talk <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I know. And you know, in, in 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 respect to you as well, but it's lovely to speak with somebody who who knows this wisdom and and knows this in a real way and knows the impact of knowing this and how it brings so much healing and benefit into your life when you're here with it and you know it, you know, and that's why I... Yeah, I was going to say, what, what shocked me talking to you and talking to Angela is that we've all come at things from completely different angles and from completely different uh, lifestyles and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. But the similarities that there are between everything is shocking. Yeah. Absolutely shocking. Yeah. And I yeah. suppose maybe just to end on that, because that is so profound and what you're saying is, and this is what I'd love, you know, for your listeners to hear, you know, the great illusion in life is that, you know, we all hide away in fear of revealing our true selves and we're all terrified to show our vulnerability and as a result of that we experience more disconnection and more separation whereas when we really show the vulnerability of who we are other people and I do this with groups you know when they share their story it has such an amazing impact on everyone else and they feel so much love and acceptance and it permits other people to show and reveal who they are the room and then you have connection and love and understanding and we are designed for that you're born with love you develop fear you're not born with fear you're born with love and you grow you develop fear because of your experience but when we all take down the mask and we all look at each other you can nobody can reject the true nature of anyone you'll only end up loving the true nature of people. And I would love people to maybe hear that through this. You've all heard me unveiling myself in a real way, in a raw way in my story. I know nobody's going to judge that story. You know, they're they're going to respect it because that is the truth of me. You know, and the same, the minute we share ourselves in the room and we share the truth of ourselves, nobody rejects that. So it's beautiful what you said. We all have different life experiences, but when we come together and we share the truth of ourselves, the love that comes out of that and the yeah. acceptance is yeah. profound. You and, know, and, and if if people are suffering and are listening to this and all the rest of it, and you look at yourself in the mirror, um, ask yourself, how do I get to know who I am? 
first yeah. and foremost, because yeah. you, you need to know who you are or have yeah. that as part of your journey of uh, sure. healing. Um, and that, that's the basis that you have to build on. And, and to know that when we look in the mirror, A, you're going to look through eyes that are wounded. So you're not going to see your real self. You're going to look at yourself as, a, you know, through wounded eyes. It's always nice to kind of write down what it is that you think other people see when they look at you, people you love, or even ask somebody you love, a partner. You know, what do you think of when you look at me? Because sometimes we forget to take in, I'm lovable. I might be looked at in a way that I'm admired and people mm. appreciate me. If we have ourselves in that under that microscope and it's a negative narrative and we only see ourselves through wound, through hurt, and you know, we're rejecting ourselves, it's nice to kind of come up and breathe and go, I wonder how somebody else might see me. Because you yeah. can be sure somebody else is going to yeah. hold the light of who you are in them, yeah. you know, in a real way. And, and, and the, the sort of the final message I'd, I'd say is that no matter what you've been through, you can get proper you back. Oh, and it's all right. It's yeah. all right not to be all right at times. Oh, my God. I get days where I'm not OK. And I ring Angela and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm I call it the death and rebirth. You know, the dark night of the soul. Angela, I'm here eating two chocolate Easter eggs. I'm so fucking not open. You know, and we laugh at that. But only I do two. that now. <laughs> yeah, only two. <laughs> OK, maybe three. But we do that now where I can allow it to happen and I'm not angry or I'm not trying to fix it. It's just an emotion that once you relate to it and you mind it, it goes away by itself, you know. So I just accept that I'm an spectrum of colors, that I'm wonderful and I'm bashy all at the same time, but in the best possible ways. It's just being human. We all have it. It's, you know, it's about being human. And human is we're emotional and we're vulnerable and we're raw and we're real. It's not, you know, let's get meditative and let's look amazing with our malabeads. No, bullshit. Sorry. Well, no. well being, being, being human in the best possible way is a perfect place to stop. Karen, it's been a real thank pleasure you. talking to you this afternoon. Great. I loved it. Great to see you again. Yeah. And thank you for having me. <laughs>